Mark. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So we are picking back up where we left off right before the holiday season hit. And uh, we are going to go back, as I said last week, and we are going to continue through this book of Mark. And we should not have any breaks in our preaching between uh, now and the remainder of the year. I mean, excuse me, not the year, but um, through, I think we'll finish up right around Easter or right after Easter is the way it looks at this, at this time. Now, if you've been here and you've been following through the book of Mark, you realize that the last sermon that I preached was at the end of Mark 9. So you may wonder why, why are we picking up middle ways in the chapter? And there's a couple of reasons for that. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you this morning as to why those reasons are. Uh, verses 13 through 16 are being saved until uh, the fourth Sunday of the month which is always recognized in Christianity as what we call the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so we'll revisit uh, verses 13 through 16 uh, on the fourth Sunday of the month. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, deal with a very delicate subject, the subject of divorce. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not ready to preach that. So um, I continue in the meantime to study and to prepare, uh, to preach on that. And um, when the time is ready in this Mark series, before Mark is done, uh, we will come back to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and preach that. I'm not avoiding it. I'm not scared to preach it. I just want to preach it and preach it right, okay? Um, because it is a subject that not one of us in here have escaped, probably, uh, in our lives, at least somebody, uh, either ourselves or someone very close to us. So um, we'll revisit that at a later time. But today we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. And so uh, let's read this. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible or device, or if you don't have either one of those, and the Scripture will be on the screen. Scripture says this, and as they were setting out on his journey, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The greatest question in the world. He asked the most important question in the world. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud or covet, and honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, who wouldn't have liked to have this guy as a kid? Like, I mean, that's the perfect child. Especially the last one that he kept. Honor thy father and thy mother, I have kept it. Now, youth, let me just say this, youth in the Bible there means he began to do this at age 12. That's when, uh, uh, in Jewish culture, they would practice what is called a bar mitzvah, and that was the coming of age there. And so when he says, from a young man, that is the age that he is speaking of there. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you like one thing, 
Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, again, aren't you glad that even those people who walked with Jesus intimately had to have some stuff repeated to them? Amen. Because you, you feel like Jesus has had to say a lot of the same stuff to you over and over and over again. Well, guess what? He doesn't grow tired and weary like we do in having to repeat himself. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Good question. Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, Now, look, this verse doesn't get enough, credit, enough play in our minds. They are really um, confused to some degree. But this question of who can have eternal life in their life, maybe not in our lives, maybe not in our society, but in their life and in their society is the most crucial question to have the right answer on. Who can have eternal life? And when Jesus says, this guy doesn't have it, then they say, well, then who in the world can have it? And this is what Jesus says. Why? Because they feel like in their heart at this moment, that, that this thing of eternal life is something that they cannot possess if that man cannot possess it. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What does it say? You're right. This is very hard, impossible to do on your own. But with me? Nothing's impossible. So this morning, I want to break this story down into three simple points, okay? Number one is, I want us to look at, there's two characters in the story. And we're going to look at each one of these characters individually. The first character in the story that we want to deal with is just the man. You can call him the rich man, the rich young man, the rich young ruler as he's referred to in the book of Matthew, but I'm just going to call him the man. The man. What do we know about the man? Well, he was eager to meet Jesus, right? Do you remember that back in verse 17? It says that he ran up to Jesus. Why was he running after Jesus? Because this man needed resolution for the conflict within his soul. What was the conflict within his soul? Well, he, he, he's, the conflict is, is revealed in the question that he asked. What must one do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that's on the table. That's the question that's causing so much conflict in his life that he needs uh, a resolution of. 
He knew that there was something extraordinary about Jesus. Not only was he eager to meet Jesus, and not only was he eager to get resolution for the conflict within his soul, but he knew that there was something extraordinary about Jesus. And we see that when the Bible says he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher. Now the question on the table this morning is, what instigated this inquiry for a man who had everything? For someone who had everything, what was the, the, the pressure point that made him want to ask and inquire of Jesus about something that all of a sudden he realizes he doesn't have. I believe the reason why he's asking this question is because of what happens in verses 13 through 16, the verses that I told you we're going to hold off to the fourth Sunday of this month. And real quickly, what's happening in those verses is that Jesus is, is teaching on how you get into the kingdom of God, which in essence is just another way of teaching how, do, how you how you come to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says that if you're going to come into the kingdom of God, if you're, going to have, if you're going to inherit eternal life, then you come into the kingdom and you inherit it as little children. Now, that has turned the apple cart upside down. Why? Because this is not how good Jewish people were taught one inherits eternal life. And so he has so much respect for Jesus that when Jesus sets forth this paradigm-shifting way of, of having inheriting eternal life and coming into God's kingdom, this man realizes in that moment that I have everything, but I don't have the most important thing. I don't have eternal life. If Jesus is right on how people get into the kingdom, then, then, then I don't have it. Jesus' words revealed that this man, though he possessed everything, still lacked one thing. This young man was an, an exceptional young per, uh, person. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of guy that you want your daughter to bring home to say, I found the one. I mean, this is cream of the crop. Matter of fact, I mean, if you were like going to start a following, uh, I mean, if, if you were looking for disciples to, to put into your entourage, this man would have highly qualified. Why? Because his, his personhood, his character is impeccable. He, he, is, he is unlike anyone else around. Notice his admission concerning what we call the second table of the law. Now, you, you realize that when Moses came down, he didn't have the Ten Commandments written on one tablet, right? They were written on two, two tablets. And so what is often referred to as the second tablet, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, look, I'm going to take the Ten Commandments and I'm going to boil them down into two commandments. Do you remember what those two commandments are? Commandment number one is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Okay? So what is he doing that? He sums tablet number one, the first four commandments, up in one commandment. But then Jesus says, let me sum up commandment five through ten, which is found on the second tablet, as love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
And he says, and that is the totality of the law. And so what is this young man saying here? He, he is saying, he is admitting that he has kept the entirety of the second table. Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. This is what Paul said of himself. Look at this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, at what? As to righteousness under the law, what did Paul say? Blameless. Paul's like, you can't find one commandment that I've broken. I am blameless as it, as it pertains to living according to the law. But look at what Paul says. And I want you to hold this thought because this is the, the actual the, the message of the sermon. But look at what Paul says. Paul says, I've, I have uh, obtained the highest morality. But he says, whatever I've gained because of my morality... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. You know what Paul is saying? He is saying, though I have obtained the highest level of morality that one can attain, guess what? It does not gain me Christ. He was blameless, this young man, but he was not sinless. You know why he wasn't sinless? Because he was born a sinner. Y'all got that? I mean, he could have done he, he could have been blameless, but he wasn't sinless. And if you're not sinless, then Jesus says there's a different path to get into the kingdom of God. Blameless won't get you in the kingdom of God. Only sinlessness gets you into the kingdom of God. You can keep all the second second tablet commandments and still not enter the kingdom. Why? Because morality is not enough to get into heaven. Eternal life cannot be earned, only received. So that's the first character in our story. Let's look at our second character. You got the man, and now you got the, the Messiah. Now, Jesus' interactions with this uh, young man, it, it reminds me of uh, a story that John tells us in John chapter 2. Now, watch, listen, just listen to these words. Th these words are to, they should chill you to the bone. Now, when he was, Jesus, in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Send a shiver up your spine. Gives you a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Jesus knows you. Uh, not to Instagram you. Not the Facebook you. Not the social media you. I mean, Jesus really knows you. Like, if, if Jesus got into your real life and started taking pictures of what you were really like and posting them on all your social media accounts, that's kind of how you should feel right now. Oh, Lord, no, don't do that. 
That's the level at which the Lord knows you. Listen, he knows you even better than you know you. Jesus knows what is in us. He knows our hearts better than we do, and he questions, and his questions, like a skilled surgeon with a scalpel, cut deep to expose our true condition. Jesus' penetrating questions seek to expose the unvarnished us. You say, what is that, unvarnished? What I mean by that is your non-social media you. Your Instagram page is the varnished you. It's the you you want everybody to think that you are, or your Facebook, or whatever, uh, whatever how you portray yourself out into the Ethernet. He exposes the real us, not to humiliate us, but to humble us. You, you know, you can't get saved unless God humbles you. That's the only kind of people that get saved is humble people. Not humiliated people, humble people. Not, Jesus doesn't expose us to embarrass us, but to embrace us. That's why we read that every Sunday, to remind us of who we really are, but who Jesus really is. He seeks to embrace not to embarrass. And lastly, Jesus seeks not to shame us. He's not trying to shame this young man. What is he trying to do? What does what Jesus aim here? Is to save this young man. How do I know that to be true? Look in your Bibles. Look at verse 21. You, you want to underline this phrase in verse 21. It is the second most important phrase, I think, in the entire story that I read to you this morning. And that is, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, what does it say? Loved him. That's why I can say Jesus wasn't seeking to embarrass him, but embrace him. Not seeking to shame him, but save him. He wasn't seeking to humiliate him, but humble him. Jesus looked at this man through the eyes of love. Jesus looks past the phony facade and sees a life without any light. He sees a man who is filled with delusion. He sees a man whose life is doomed to eternal separation, and yet Jesus loved him and spoke truth to his heart. So, two characters, the man, the Messiah, one conversation. Let's take a look at this conversation very quickly, okay? Back to verse 17. The question is in verse 17. That's where the conversation begins. What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus' previous conversation that I spoke of earlier, this is where Jesus turned the apple cart upside down. Truly, I say to you, to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. That created a buzz because no one taught entrance into God's kingdom or eternal life in such a manner. Jesus' conversation revealed two long-held beliefs concerning eternal life. 
Basically, the Jews believed that people that had money and people that were moral got into God's kingdom and inherited eternal life. Money and morality. It was taught that the rich were rich because of God's blessing on their life, and therefore they assuredly were in God's kingdom. This is seen in Jesus' conversation with his disciples following the departure. So let me say that this is not being made up, that they really believed that if you had money, that that was a sign that you had eternal life. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were amazed at those words. Why? Because that's not what they had been taught. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Why? Because it, t- it totally ran contrary to what they had been taught. The disciples thought that the young man had eternal life due to his money, and the young man thought he had eternal life due to his morality. Right? Because Jesus reinforces his teaching that eternal life is not found in trusting in your money or morality, but the Messiah. Look at verse 24. Now, I'll say this. This is one of the times that I don't like the ESV. I don't have many issues with the ESV, but this is, this is one verse that I really wish the ESV would consider uh, a, a, a different translation. Now, this is the new King James Version that you're looking at on the screen. That's why it's always good. If you're really serious about studying the Bible, have a couple of translations out to read. Uh, because they, they will all help give you a good, robust picture uh, of what you're reading. Now, everything is the same in both the ESV and the New King James, except what I highlighted in yellow. In the New King James, it says, Children, how hard it, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the, King James makes, the New King James makes this what we call explicit in the fact that they put trust in riches, the ESV makes this implicit, which really means they don't put it in because they just believe that the text itself implies that to be there. But this is the issue that's on the table. Jesus is telling this young man and everyone who will hear and read his words, eternal life is a matter of what? Trust. This young man inherits eternal life the same as you and I. We trust in Christ alone. Your morality will not get you into heaven, and your money cannot get you into heaven. Money is no sign that you have eternal life, and morality is no guarantee that you will have eternal life. That's the conversation. Now, let's go to two conclusions. And look, I, I want to tell you something. I wish you, could see, I wish you could see all of my chicken scratch for the past week on this. I mean, there's about 90% of what I wrote down and studied that just, just laying on the desk back at the house. And I crying over it thinking, I want to share all of this. But I know, y'all, I've been doing pretty good lately. Y'all been getting out right around 12 o'clock. And I know y'all, y'all get used to that and want to keep going on it. 
Let's get done at 12, preacher. Maybe five after. We'll give you five after, but you're doing good, so don't stop. So I'm not going to stop. I'm going I'm I'm to try. I got nine minutes on the clock right here. It's top of the hour. And I think I can do two conclusions in nine minutes. What's the two conclusions? You want to write these down. These, these are important. Those who don't trust Jesus for salvation walk away sorrowfully. And those who do not trust Jesus for salvation walk away sorrowfully. When you walk away from Jesus, you will find yourself, if you go back, I believe it is in verse 22 or 23, when he walks away, it says that he walked away disheartened and sorrowful. Now, disheartened is a really interesting word in the Greek language. It's a word used to describe the sky becoming overcast in anticipation of a storm. How many of y'all seen that the last week or so? You just sit outside and you just watch, right? You watch... That's what disheartened is. The next time you're outside and you see the cloud and the storm coming, that's what the Bible means by disheartened. Not only was he disheartened, but this man was sorrowful. Walking away from Jesus leads one to a sad state of being. Jesus' request is in keeping with the theme set forth in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, and Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. Now, I put those in. I'm not going to read these to you, but let me just remind you of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying in those verses, the theme that is set forth, that if you're going to be my followers, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, if you're going to really follow me, you've got to leave some stuff behind in order to follow me. You've got to turn away from some stuff in order to follow me. Jesus' request really is not disheartening if one sees Jesus for who he really is. The reason why this man is so sorrowful, the reason why he's so down. Uh, disheartened is because he can't see Jesus for who Jesus really is. Why? Because I want to give you another story real quick. Mark, I mean Mark, Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. Y'all know this story, right? This story about Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord, he wanted to see. So here we go. Jesus is entering Jericho. He's passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was what? He's what? And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Very similar story, right? Y'all see some parallels between this story and our story? But on the account of the crowd, he could not see because he was a small stature. We already know that. So he ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him, how? Joyfully. Why? Because see, Zacchaeus was a rich man, but he saw Jesus different than the rich young ruler saw Jesus. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. <laughs> That's what religious people do when Jesus starts doing his work. They grumble. He has gone to be 
uh, uh, the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's the only kind of people he goes to hang out with. And Jesus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, who told him to do that? When you get saved, that's what happens. When you see Jesus for who he really is, that's the kind of stuff that happens. Why? Because when you meet Jesus, you meet an explosive personality. When you meet Jesus, something explosive happens inside of your life. Why? Because Jesus says that when somebody truly enters into a a faith relationship with him, trusting fully in him, that they experience what is called being born again. And when you get born again, you got all new kinds of ways of thinking about life and looking at life and reacting to life. And so this man, upon receiving Jesus joyfully, he had this massive change of heart. And and his heart changed to such a degree that Jesus didn't even have to ask him to give anything away. He just started doing it of his own accord and of his own will. Which really begs to ask our story, is Jesus really saying to this guy, you got to give up all you have in order to be saved? Look at these verses. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is Jesus saying? When you see Jesus for who he really is, there is a undeniable response to Jesus. Why? Because it doesn't matter what you have. When you see who Jesus is, you'll leave everything behind to have him. That's what we call salvation. Not a lot of this junk that's being peddled around in our society today that's called salvation. Salvation is seeing Jesus as superior to all other treasures. When a person sees Jesus in this manner, they will trust Jesus with all their treasure. Why? Because you can trust Jesus with your treasure. Giving it all away would not save this man. It is his trust in Christ demonstrated in his giving it all away that would save him. Listen to that. Giving it all away would not save this man, but giving it all away demonstrated... That he saw Christ as the greater treasure. You see, the, the, the treasure that he had was the problem with getting the treasure that he wanted, which was eternal life. And Jesus says, you, you can't trust that treasure and trust me for salvation. Jesus says, you got to leave your Savior behind in order to have the Savior before you. Jesus did not tell every rich person he encountered to sell all they have and give it away. Yet every rich person in Scripture demonstrated such a reaction upon trusting Christ. Matthew, the tax collector, left all behind. Zacchaeus started giving back 
fourfold everything that he had stole from people. What Christ demanded in this story is not prescriptive, but it's descriptive. It was appropriate to the situation. Jesus was saying to the rich man, if you trust me, then let me decide what to do with your wealth. We are saved by, fa- we are saved by trusting in Christ alone. We call this faith right there. You want to know what faith means? F-A-I-T-8, there it is on the screen. Forsaking all, I trust him. That's what faith is. Forsaking all, I trust him. Jesus, if, if trusting you means giving up all my wealth, you're the greater treasure, I'll give it up, I'll sell it all. Why? Because you're the greater treasure. If, it, if, if being saved means I've got to leave behind my God and everything that I trusted in for my salvation, then guess what? I'll leave it all behind because you're the only way of salvation. Listen, Christianity is not something you add on to your life. You can't tack on his righteousness to your filthy rag righteousness. Christianity is too explosive to be an add-on. You cannot make yourself a child of God. You must be born again. People either find Jesus compelling or repelling. They are either drawn to him or driven away by him. This is how people who come in contact, close contact with Jesus react. You may say, I've never been drawn or driven away by the person of Jesus. Then I say to you, this morning you stand on very dangerous ground. Because when you encounter Christ, there's always a response. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Encountering Christ always provokes either an attitude of worship or worthlessness, that Christ is either worthy of my worship or he is worthless. If you feel nothing, cry out to Christ that you might encounter him. If you have encountered him and found him worthless, would you again this morning consider his great love for you and bend your knee in worship? Lastly, i got to do this quick. Here's the last one. Write this down because this is where most of you are this morning. Okay, I know most of you. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. Or at least that's what you say you are. But listen, this is what you need to write down. Those who trust in Jesus with their eternal life but not in their everyday life will live sorrowfully. You will live disheartened. You can trust Jesus with your eternal life, but you can't trust him with your earthly everyday life. And God knows we've got enough of us walking around on planet Earth who confess Christ as Savior, but we look like we're living without him as Savior in the sense that we walk around disheartened and sorrowful. And could it be that we have not gone much beyond trusting Jesus to get into heaven and not trusting Jesus in everything that matters in everyday life. Jesus is not against his people having riches. He gives plenty of instruction concerning riches. David read that to us earlier, right? What does he say? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides everything to enjoy. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is what? Truly life. A couple of things to end right here. You can give it away because he gave everything. He gave you everything. You can give it away because he gave you everything. 
Just go read Job. Job lost everything, but in the end, he gained everything. Why? Because the one who took it away is the one who gave it to begin with. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How about this? Generosity helps others and builds up one's faith. That's why Jesus is telling us, be generous. Why? Because when you do it, it guards you against having a greedy heart. It's the protection so that you don't fall prey to the love of money. That's what generosity is. It helps others, but it builds you up. And I love this one. This is the easiest one. Lay up, don't store up. Lay up treasures in heaven. Don't store them up here on earth. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, trust me enough with with your earthly life to lay up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Because if you can trust Christ for eternal life, why are you not trusting him with your earthly life? When we don't trust him with our earthly life, everyday life, we will be disheartened and distressed. Hear me, Christian, walking with Jesus is not a life free of difficulty, only one free of being distressed and disheartened. Brothers and sisters, Christ has served you, uh, excuse me, saved you from everlasting doom, not to destroy you with difficulty, only to, de- only to deliver you to everlasting joy. Hymn writer John Newton writes the following words from the, Lo- uh, from the Lord in an answer to his prayer for spiritual growth. But I don't guess I put these in, so I'll just read it to you. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find find thine all in me. Dear Christian, you will find Christ's request quite strong for his call remains unchangeable. That's his call to you. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It is in the strength of this command that we will find the promised joy of Christ. It is in his request of everything that we will find our hearts fully and completely satisfied. When Christ is worth it all, all life worth it all, life is worth living. Come on, David. When Christ is worth it all, life is worth living. Are you, you getting it? When Christ is worth it all, life is worth living. Until Christ is worth it all, life will not be worth living. That's what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler, and that's what he's saying even to his born-again children today. Listen, until I am worth it all, leaving whatever it is that you're holding on to, until you say, you know what, Jesus, you are worth it all. I'm going to leave that behind. I'm going to forsake that, and I'm going to fully trust you in this part of my life, in this area of my life, in this everyday situation of my life, because I know that in doing that, in seeing you as superior and far more valuable than anything else in this world, than anything that I'm trying to hold on to to find joy and satisfaction in this life, that if you are worth it all, 
then I will find the satisfaction and joy that I'm looking for in life. That's the way Jesus has hardwired us. He's wired you up to look for that. Why? Because what he's wired you for is to look for him. Let's pray. Father, in these next moments ahead, I pray that we would leave here determined to live a life that says Christ is worth it all and that is why my life is worth living. And Father, if there's one or more amongst us that has never, they've never trusted in you. They've, they've never had this rich young ruler moment where they've been confronted with the possibility of eternal life. Or maybe they have in the past and, and, they, and they've been totally indifferent. They, they've totally been unmoved by it. Or maybe they were moved and yet like the rich young ruler, they walked away sorrowfully. And yet today, in hearing your words to them, that you love them, that you died for them, that you are willing to save them, that today they see your love, they hear your love, they feel your love, and they say, forsaking all, Jesus, I trust you. Save me from my sin. Make me your own. And for those that have already prayed that prayer, Lord, help us to move on from just trusting you with eternal life to trusting you in everyday life for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand, let's sing.